I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Gretchen Wettstein. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 27th, 2018. Coming up, an interview with Rob Dunn, author of Never Home Alone, a peek into the complex, often unseen ecosystems found in our homes. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. With yesterday's successful landing, there's a new spacecraft on the surface of Mars, and it's called InSight. Using a collection of instruments, InSight will determine the internal structure of Mars and measure the heat flux out of the interior of Mars, along with other science objectives. InSight is a stationary lander powered by solar panels. It is carrying a number of instruments, including a seismometer and a heat flow probe. So far, InSight has taken its first few images of the surface of Mars and has successfully unfurled its solar panels. Over the next few months, the spacecraft will carefully move the seismometer from the spacecraft to the surface of Mars, where the direct connection with the surface will allow the seismometer to take precise measurements of vibrations within Mars. With these measurements, InSight will determine the internal structure of Mars to a precision that far exceeds our current knowledge. Similarly, InSight will also place a heat flow probe on the surface of Mars. The probe will drill down 16 feet into Mars's surface. Using temperature sensors on the probe and on the electrical cord connecting the probe to the spacecraft, InSight will measure the heat flux from the interior of Mars. Understanding the current internal heat flux of Mars will help us understand the conditions that prevailed during the formation of Mars. Now that InSight has successfully landed on Mars, we can look forward to exciting new discoveries about the Martian interior. Can you imagine being unable to use your smartphone or tablet? For many people with paralysis, for whom using electronic devices is nearly impossible, this is the accepted reality. But this reality may be changing thanks to a baby aspirin-sized brain implant developed by a group called BrainGate. Once implanted in the motor cortex of the brain, the implant enables individuals with quadriplegia to send messages, stream music, and even shop online using commercially available tablets. The device works by changing brain signals into electronic messages that the tablets receive via Bluetooth. When participants think about moving a mouse cursor, the implanted device detects the associated brain signals and changes them into mouse movement. While not commercially available, this device marks an important step toward improving communication for people with a range of neurological conditions. How do repeated disasters shape and strengthen communities? Rachel Egan, MA at the University of Colorado Boulder, addresses this question in her free lecture at the CU Museum tomorrow evening. The Tilaran Arenal region of Costa Rica is one of the most volcanically active regions in the world. But despite this risk, from the advent of sedentary villages during the Tronadora phase from 2000 to 500 BC until the arrival of Spanish in the 16th century, people demonstrated remarkable resilience. 
Using this region as a case study, Egan's research uses archaeologic and geographic information systems to explore the innovative ways that pre-Hispanic people adapted to the hazardous nature of their environment. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. and the talk begins at 7. See the University of Colorado Henderson Museum website for more details. when the floors are sparkling clean and the house seems silent. Our domestic domain is wild beyond imagination. Our guest today, Professor Rob Dunn, gives a sneak peek into the natural history of the wilderness in our homes, from the microbes in our showers to the crickets in our basements. Welcome to the program, Rob. I'm speaking to Professor Rob Dunn of North Carolina State University today, and he has a book that just came out, Never Home Alone. Now, it might not be what you think, so I will let Rob tell you what you are living with. Go ahead, Rob. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's great to talk to you today. Um, so the, the, the book is really the story of all the species that, that live in your home, um, and also how those species are changing. And the, the big take-home is that it's a foregone conclusion that you live with thousands of species, and the only thing you have control over is a little bit about which species those are. Um, and so it's, it's really the story of what we know and we don't know about life in homes, um, how easy it is to find just totally mysterious things under beds and in bathrooms, uh, and and the, the science of, of all of that. And this is such a cool idea. I mean, this is coming at ecology from a really novel perspective, looking at homes as a really significant environment, because they are. They are our environments. And so it's pretty amazing the diversity you found and all the great things that this diversity can do for us. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's been interesting because in some ways a lot of um, modern biology actually starts indoors. And so if you look at the beginnings of the study of insects, um, you know, Micrographia, which Hook wrote, this beautiful book on the cosmos and, and animals, and most of what he depicted in terms of life was indoor stuff. And then you have Leeuwenhoek, who started microbiology, and most of his work, or much of it anyway, was on things he found in his own house. But then once we figure out that some things could be dangerous, we, we, we progressively develop this general suspicion of life in houses. And so uh, we stopped studying any of the stuff that wasn't dangerous. And so we've then come back in, and we find again and again there's this stuff that's super common in homes that we know nothing about. Um, and so, like, book lice would be an example. They eat fungi that's on your books or on your windowsills. And we, we find them in Raleigh, you find them in every single house. Um, and more generally, they're in almost every house. And yet there are like two, two people on Earth that study book lice, and, um, you know, and, and mostly they're not studying the ones in houses. Or, you know, camel crickets we find in houses, and we know very little about what they're doing in houses. Or even ants, like there are zillions of people who study ants. But the people who study them in houses mostly just study how to kill them, not what they're doing there. And, and so... I started off in rainforest because I loved finding totally new things under every new leaf, and I'm now in this weird stage of my career where I can go into somebody's house 
and and do the same thing. So it's, it's super fun. Yeah, I think that was a big surprise to me that you have uncovered all these new species right here under our noses. Who knew? That's so wild. Yeah, and it's. I mean, it's very, so the the. The operative pronoun here, too, is is we in the sense that this is a fun thing we've been able to do with lots of collaborators around the world um, and at the University of Colorado, um, but also with the public, because once we moved indoors, who better to study the indoors than the people who live in these houses? And so it's been great to be able to get the public participating in projects and helping us to see things we didn't know were there. I think this is a big coming area in our modern world, in the 21st century, involvement of everyday people in science, what we call the citizen scientists. And I've interviewed a few people that do citizen science recently on this radio show. So we will link to Rob's website for those of you in the listening audience that would like to participate in citizen science. But it's a great way to get involved and further the findings of science in so many different ways. So I'll let you talk maybe a little bit about some of your other citizen science projects, Rob. Yeah, we have, we have um, well, we have a bunch, but two two that are really germane to the book. Um, w- one that is a project on the iNaturalist platform. So if you go to iNaturalist and then you search within the iNaturalist for Never Home Alone, and it's a project where you can download this iNaturalist app, which takes like 30 seconds, and I hate apps, and it took me 30 seconds, Um and and then you use it to take pictures of the life you see in your house. And on iNaturalist, there are then experts and community members that help to identify it. And our goal is to get 10,000 observations from around the world from inside houses to start to see what's in there. And it's been really cool already that we're already seeing a bunch of stuff that we didn't know was in houses, and that obviously people knew. And so, for example, in tropical Asia, there's a really common... It's a crab spider, but it's like the size of my head, which is probably larger than average. Um, uh, and obviously, people who have this spider in their house, they know. Um, but scientifically, there's you know there's not much sense of what it's doing in houses, how important it is. And so we're seeing that again and again. And so that's one project. And so you can you can go do it right now. It doesn't have to be your house, even if you're at your office. Download the app, look around your office uh, for what's there, and start taking pictures. And I promise there's stuff there, even if you don't see it immediately. So look on your windowsill, take your light fixture off, dump it on, dump it on a piece of white paper, and and you you will lose a couple of three good hours uh, looking at what's there. Um, <laughs> the, the other that, that's really fun is that we have a bunch of projects now on food, and we found this to be an amazing sort of place for doing citizen science, which is that. You know, food. Most foods alive. All fermented foods alive, but all, most other food is alive too. And and uh, so we've been engaging the public to study sourdough bread, to study cheese, to study these other foods that are in your kitchen, and yet for which they're really uh, central mysteries. And one of the cool things about that is that for citizen science, for me, one of the greatest things is when the public shares ideas or observations that are just things we never would have gotten to on our own. And with food, it's like every day we work on a food project, somebody shares something that changes what we understand. Um, because people have traditional knowledge about how they make bread, about how they make cheese, about how they do all these other things. Yeah, so this, you can look for the sourdough projects on our web pages, and th- th- that's been so fun. Yeah, that sourdough story was amazing. I just want to touch on it really briefly because it highlights so many of the different aspects that you're talking about. Like, I loved it that you got together these bakers from all over the world 
and had them bake bread, and then you took uh, samples, you swabbed their hands to find out what microbes lived on their hands and how that could possibly explain the differences in the breads they made. That was amazing. Yeah, and it, it was um, what we anticipated was that they would influence the, their bread and its flavor, and that, and that was tr- it was surprising and cool. But it was like that's what we were looking for too. Um, and and I think this is probably true generally. If you think about fermented foods, that they're you can you can hate as much as you want the the idea that there are species in the air in your house, and yet you depend on them for everything you ever ferment. Um, and even if you don't ferment yourself, the people who are doing the fermenting that you're buying depend on them. Um, and and so I, that that was super interesting. Then the idea that the bakers were flavoring the bread with their daily life, literally, and we could tell the difference. Um, but the other thing that was cool was the realization. That then when we looked at the bakers themselves, that they had been influenced uh, by the act of baking, that their hands were microbially very different from the hands of anybody else we've ever looked at. Yeah, that which, was which wild. Meant, that, yeah. That, that they were like their own starter source. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, the dynamics of this we don't understand super well yet, and it's just really the first look at it. But it, it, it really begs the question, if, you know, that... Your hands, your body, uh, your entire essence is strongly microbial. You know, to separate you from your microbes is a is is not a you can't do it. Um, and many features of of who you are are really who your microbes are. But the idea that your microbes are also shaped by your experiences so strongly that those of a baker could be so, the hands of a baker could be so different. It really got me thinking about the ways in which the microbes on us tell our story and made me start to think, like, what story do I want my kids' microbes to tell? Right. You know, which is a different question about how do you, how do you live your life. Like, what, if we were to swab their hands when they're 30 years old, what do I want that to, to speak to? Yeah, and that brings in the point that, unlike many people's conceptions, most microbes are really beneficial, and obviously we can't live without them. And we don't want to be killing them off in our homes. There's a lot of, of reasons why, and hopefully we'll get to talk about shower heads. But there's there's so many cool stories in your book, and I wanted to touch on the camel cricket story, which you alluded to the camel crickets. But I think the camel cricket story pulls together so many of, the, of, of your interesting findings and also this subtext about how science works. So I, I hope you can tell us that story. Yeah, for sure. I, 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 uh, I love that story, maybe more than I should even. But the, um, so we were, um, MJ Epps, is now a faculty member at Mary Baldwin College, was in my lab. And uh, when she was present, we asked a bunch of our participants in projects if they had camel crickets in their houses. Now, these are these crickets that live in caves. They have long, long antennae. They have pretty diminutive eyes, and they're really cave animals that when we started to build cellars and basements, they were like, oh, that looks pretty good, you know, and so moved in. But but very few people study them. Uh, but there was an old book that documented where they should be in North America and which species were where. And, and so when MJ started to look at the data that came back when we asked people if they had camel crickets, there were data on where people said they had them and where they didn't. And the problem was that those data didn't match our expectation. That the 
people said they had them in places that they shouldn't have been and vice versa. And so then MJ asked people to send pictures. And in the lab, we differed as, in terms of what we thought we would get back. But I think some of us thought that we would get pictures of things that weren't camel crickets at all. Um, we didn't know. And, and we got the pictures, and they were almost all of an introduced Japanese camel cricket species that was known to be present in the U.S. but not known to be common, um, that had basically spread house to house across eastern North America, largely undetected. And so for me, this was this amazing moment because, you know, I thought we were going to discover cool new microbes in houses, and here was something the size of my thumb. And lo and behold, it was in, this species was in my basement, too, and I didn't realize it was anything uh, new or remarkable because I thought the cricket people knew. Um, and, and so for me, that was a really uh, telling story that we needed to really pay attention to what the public was telling us about what they were seeing, but also that big discoveries were possible. But then I came back, and I, I thought, ooh, people are going to be so excited about this. And the participant response was largely like, well, what, what how, do, how do I get rid of it, and or what good is it? And that was that was initially a pretty frustrating question because here's this thing I find beautiful and fascinating and you know a, a wonder of, of uh, evolution's machinations, um, but but you know what good is it? Uh, and so, and so we started to think though, like well, what could good what good could it be? And so we started to think about well, what use might it have to humans in some broader sense? And and so. Well, we know it's a cave cricket mostly, and so in caves there are not many nutrients, and so we thought maybe it has microbes in its gut for breaking down food that's hard to digest so that it could get all the nutrients it could possibly get. And so I, I found a colleague here at North Carolina State who knows about using microbes industrially, and she said, well, we can test and see if those camel cricket microbes, the ones in their guts, can break down black liquor, which is the waste product of the paper pulp industry. And it shouldn't have worked, um, but it turned out that, yes, indeed, the camel cricket gut microbes, some of them could break down that waste product and turn it into energy. And I have to interject and, and so it, that you, you no, talked please. about the, the chances of finding a microbe, because people have looked for microbes to break down this yucky, gunky black liquor stuff, and they haven't found it. And you found, was it, am I right, not one but two? Yeah, depending on how you count, we've found up well, up to four that can break down the main stuff, and then then two that can break it down in the alkaline um, liquid that this that waste product is typically in. And so, uh, from the world before this study, there were only four bacteria species known to break down lignin, which is the hard stuff in wood, and that's part of the waste product. And and so we essentially doubled that from one individual camel cricket for the world. Um, and it's, that's not to say, like, we're such clever scientists or something. It's, it's that, well, you know, we really haven't done a very good job of looking. And so, and so it begs the question of, like, well, what other uses do the, all these other species in your house have? Um, and I think many, 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 many uses, but we have to study them. Yeah, I think that's such a great point, that we tend to look at the world as how we can use it, and that's maybe not the best way to look at it. But regardless, there's virtually an untapped... Um, source of great products out there if we just take the time to think about it. And I really like it that you stress how you took a focused approach. You started off not just by asking 
oh, maybe camel crickets have these beneficial microbes in their gut, but you thought about the camel crickets' life history and their ecology, and so you came up with sort of a targeted hypothesis. They're Food is really rare where they live. Maybe they have. Maybe they can digest all this weird stuff. And let's look at that. And I think that's a really important aspect of science that you need to know a little bit about what you're studying to come up with good hypotheses. Yeah, and I think that um, I've learned relatively late in my career that you also need to listen to what people say are their needs and, and wants. And we're not taught to do that very much. You know, you and I both grew up in sort of basic ecology and evolutionary biology, and um, where, where you're studying the, the the beautiful stories and general rules of life. And you know, I, I never took a class on how do you make that responsive to what the applied needs of society are. And I, I sort of grew up scientifically learning that as long as I did my basic science, somebody else would apply it. And, and what I've found through my career is that there aren't those other people. Um, and, and there are people who do application, but they don't know about your basic obscure science on camel crickets. And so that for me, making friendships with those people who know those uses or listening to the public about those uses has been inc- incredibly rewarding um, and e- e- so long as I'm willing to have long lunches, much easier than I might have imagined. <laughs> that's that's a good point. <laughs> so w- one way that you did address something that people want to find out is in your showerhead study. And that was a pretty amazing finding to me that the more water is treated, the more likely we are to get bad actors in our showerheads. Yeah, so th- this is work um, led by my collaborator, Noah Fear, at the University of Colorado, who's really a... Um, he has a, a, a genius for using tech, new technologies to see what other people miss. And so he's been a, he's been a great collaborator for this kind of work. Um, and so the, the goal of the project was to engage people to swab the, you know, unscrew your shower head and look into that pipe. That there's almost always some gunk on that pipe. And scientists use the word biofilm to describe that gunk. Um, it's, a, it's kind of an apartment that's pooped by the microbes that house themselves. And so, and so we did a study of what's found in that gunk, you know, around the U.S. and around the world. And um, we found a, a lot of interesting things, but, but one of them is that there seems to be a big difference between municipal water supplies that are treated with chlorine and water that's coming out of, of wells and or is, for other reasons, not treated. And, and it creates very different communities in your showerheads. And some of them can be really bad for you was the takeaway yeah, message that I got. Yes, yeah, so, so, um, so, especially if you're immunocompromised, which, which is a lot of people these days, that uh, some of these communities have the potential to cause problems because there's a group of bacteria uh, called non-tuberculous mycobacteria that, that can become abundant and that can cause lung infections. And that those bacteria seem to become more common on municipal water systems with a lot of chlorine. That's early days, and so I say that with you know little hesitation. But that's what the data suggests so far. And and so what we think may be happening is that when you treat with chlorine, you kill all the stuff that's susceptible to chlorine. But these these non-tuberculous mycobacteria are actually not super susceptible to chlorine, and so they go like, oh, there's still food in the water. Um, and now I have no competition, and they do better. Um, 
Yeah, like yeah, so is, many, so many other problem species. Well, those are just a couple of the fascinating stories in your book that we don't have time to get into. So I will link <laughs> to your book on our show website, and I will also link to your lab and to the iNaturalist site so people can get involved if they want to. And thank you so much for talking this morning, Rob. That was a fascinating, touching in on your book, and I hope and encourage people to read it. Thanks so much, and thanks for your show. That was professor and author Rob Dunn, whose recent book, Never Home Alone, describes some of the small and bizarre but rarely problematic species we share our homes with. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Beth Bennett and engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Alejandro Soto and me, Gretchen Westheim. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the soundtrack to Home Alone, composed by John Williams. Visit our website at howonearth.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Gretchen Wettstein.